Hello and welcome to Cinemakers. This is episode 46, Fast Times at Ridgemont High from 1982, directed by Amy Hackerman. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And with us for this entire 10-episode run of Amy Heckerling, we have of the Whistle Thinking podcast and the new podcast, not as new when you're hearing this, but the new podcast that is sweeping the nation. What am I chewing? Cara Gayla Regan. Hello, Cara. Hello. Mike and I, when we decided to do Cinemakers, wanted to make sure we had sort of as kind of even distribution as we could, men and women, in terms of guests, in terms of directors. Turns out, Carrie, did you know that there's not a lot of women directors who made a lot of movies? Were you aware of that? You know, I feel like I've heard that before somewhere. I can't really place now. Yeah. I wonder why that is. It's kind of weird. I loved starting with Soderbergh. We loved doing Nolan. But now here we are. You know, there's a couple other female directors that I know that we're going to do sooner rather than later. But Amy Heckerling was sort of a nice shorter-ish run to do between the time that, you know, Watch the Throne basically ended and our new TomTom podcast began in January. So this was like a shorter bit of a run. It's also, you know, I think Mike mentioned this when we did our RKSS episode with Nick Jenkins a few weeks ago. We're kind of breaking our own first rule a little bit and going a little bit older than we were with Soderbergh or with Christopher Nolan. But I also think that like it's sort of in that same wheelhouse because 1982, this is the film debut of one Mr. Nicolas Cage. So in terms of what we cover, this is also still right in our wheelhouse. Yes, it's still connected. So I like that about it. Like, if we have to break our rule, at least it's within guidelines of the network. I also feel like these movies are different in the sense that they're mostly seem to be comedies that we're going to be touching base on here. And like the last two runs, Nolan and Soderbergh. Um, well, Soderbergh, we got some some comedy in there, but you know, primarily Soderbergh, we got some of everything. Yeah, some of everything. But like, especially that last run of Nolan, like it got pretty serious. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it got, why so serious, Nolan? But this will be fun. Like, I'm really looking forward to this. I think these are going to be very interesting conversations in light of, you know, recent current events. Definitely a little bit of that wistful thinking feel for me to go back and look at these films, um, almost all of which I have seen, not recently, but have seen, and a lot of them as a kid. So to go back with adult eyes and look back upon these is going to be pretty interesting and a lot of fun. I've only seen two of these movies. One of them, you know, speaking of Wistful, speaking of Kara, Wistful Thinking already covered in Clueless, but I've only seen this one in Clueless. Like, all the other ones, she's made a couple other big movies. I've never seen any of them aside from the two biggest ones, so I'm excited to go into this. Kara, how many of these have you seen before we started this run? Had you seen Fast Times before? Have you, Or yes. what else have you seen or what have you not seen? So I've only seen Fast Times, Clueless, and there's definitely a third one. That European Vacation? Look who's talking, maybe? That's a popular one. No. Nope. Johnny nope, Dangerously? Nope. Loser? Loser. That's the one. The really awful movie about date rape. Oh boy, can't wait to get to it. Oh, you bet. It's going to be fun. But Clueless is my favorite movie ever. Oh, okay. And also I did want to do a comedy director because the world is bad and scary and it's not great. it would be nice to uh, have some laughs. So I was, I was excited to go back and kind of fill in those holes on Amy Heckerling and I just find her to be a really kind of interesting person and an interesting director. So I'm excited about this. And this, I mean, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. It's amazing how good her first movie is. Like this, yeah. mm-hmm. I'm worried that we're not going to have another movie as good as this. Like, Following was definitely, for, for Christopher Nolan, Following was good, but obviously uh, not his worst, but maybe his worst or my least favorite of his movies. Sex Lies is great. I mean, this, I feel this sort of feels on par with Sex Lies, but then obviously Soderbergh went and made, you know, some of like my favorite movies. 
he reached such great heights. I mean, there might be stuff in here that I really, really love. I know that I really like Clueless, but man, like Fast Times is so good and right off the bat, like just great. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely not going to get anything as good as this and Clueless because I I definitely think that Clueless is a masterpiece and doesn't get anywhere near like the respect that it deserves. So we at least have that to look forward to, but I'm not so sure about the other ones. This is sort of, I feel like in a class of its own, not only in her own sort of filmography, but just like in general, like just in in terms of film history, I really just feel like it carved uh, its own sort of notch on the belt there you know it's a quintessential high school film like looking back on it iconic high school film but you know it it makes me think like american graffiti this this reminded me this gave me really big vibes this time around of like dazed and confused and everybody wants some you know what i mean that kind of thing too yeah yeah like i even lump in like animal house into this category even though that's like a college film also but like yeah there's just sort of like it's it's on another level entirely and it is pretty astounding for this to be a debut film i mean following yes that was nolan's first film but i almost feel like memento is more like like following sort of like a soft opening but yeah it's crazy like I didn't consider that all three of them have like really strong debuts and we'll get to Clueless like that's great but along the way we're not gonna we might not reach these heights but we're gonna have a lot of fun anyway like they're still good movies you know what I'm saying like we didn't set ourselves up like to fail here like her movies aren't all bad movies or anything like when we get to look who's talking like it's ridiculous and stuff but like that's still like such a fun time so we're starting strong but we still got some good stuff in there and I would also point out that the kind of back half of her career where she's made some movies that weren't quite as successful as the first half. A lot of times, after having read into this a little bit, that was the result of some interference from studios and from producers and stuff like that that are very emblematic of what women in film experience and women directors especially and why we had such a a limited list of, of women directors that we could choose from. Before we start about Fast Times. I read Amy Hackerling's Wikipedia. I read most of it. It is, it is pretty long. We were tight on time. But there was a great quote in here that I think, Kara, I don't know if you read this, but it's sort of right in line with disgust in general at the, the film industry, that she's one of the few women who have directed multiple box office hits. When asked about the fact that only 5% of movies are directed by women, this was in 2002, I think when she was talking about vamps, maybe? She said, it's a disgusting industry. I don't know what else to say, especially now. I can't stomach most of the movies about women. I just saw a movie last night. I don't want to say the name, but again, with the fucking wedding and the only time women have to say anything is about men. I think that there's something admirable and also, I don't know how to say it, but like that she feels confident enough in herself and her abilities and her standing to just trash Hollywood. You know what I mean? Like, I think that there is definitely, especially if you're in such a minority, like where 5% of films are directed by women, to be so outspoken about how much you hate the industry, I think it would be very easy for studios to basically be like, okay, cool, just don't work for us anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like (laughs) there's a very real possibility of that, and I think that there is something cool and scary that she's so outspoken. What year was that again? That 2012. Okay. So I think at that point in her career, like she'd already suffered the consequences of being a strong minded 
female director and trying to get her movies made and distributed, especially on the distribution end, has had like a really hard time with involving none other than Harvey Weinstein. Kind of the worst has already happened. Like she hasn't been able to make other movies or, you know, has had such a hard time getting it done. At this point, like she's working mostly in TV and it's kind of like, mm, like, what are you going to do to me? You know, and I think especially now with the amount of people who are speaking out about this stuff in Hollywood and other industries, you're going to start to hear a lot more of that. And I was really interested to see if she had had anything to say about all of this, you know, since all of this has has been kind of in the news. In the last like year or so? The last year, yeah. And I couldn't really find anything recent, but there was a piece on The Ringer from February 2017, which is eight months before the Harvey Weinstein story broke, I think. And it's called True Confessions of a Female Director by Lindsay Zolads. But that was a fascinating read. I mean, I would read excerpts of it to you, but I would just wind up reading you the entire thing because it's all really prescient and really interesting to read about the double standard for women of how much harder they need to work to get the same or even meager approximations of the opportunities that men get. And just kind of the consequences that a female director will suffer after a relative failure versus male directors who can make bad movie after bad movie that perform poorly and still get jobs. That was really interesting to read about. She strikes me as like a really strong, tough person too, like just from what I've heard on the commentary and behind the scenes stuff and like read online and everything like someone who just is going to be outspoken and doesn't take a lot of shit anyway. I feel like this movie definitely gave her a ton of clout. I'm not sure if it was a huge hit at the time, but I have a little bit of facts on that after after you're done saying what you're saying. It's just crazy that just between this and Clueless, like for her not to be able to put out another Fast Times or Clueless in the last 10 years is just mind boggling to me. It's so frustrating because like we're denied we're denied this talent, you know, yeah. and it's like just not fair. It, it stinks. So I'm glad that we're here now, at least. Now, I don't know if it was because it was a first-time director or a woman director or just because the studio watched the movie and didn't think there was anything here, but apparently the studio was so worried or pessimistic or just, like, against this movie that they didn't advertise this movie at all. They weren't even going to release it on the East Coast. They were just going to put it in a few theaters on the West Coast and let it die slowly. And they released it to a handful of theaters on the West Coast, and it was, like, this massive hit. And they were like, oh. And so this $5 million movie became or grossed worldwide $50 million, including, like, 27 in the U.S. So it might have been sexism. I don't know. Didn't say anything on like the, the IMDb or the wiki or anything like that. But it just seemed like they weren't behind this movie the way that they could have been or should have been. Then saw the way that people reacted to it and were like, oh, huh. OK, let's put this out there. And then because of the success of this, she was given a whole bunch of scripts to read, which became, you know, her next couple movies and stuff like that. But yeah, she tells a quick story on the commentary where she's like, you know, the studio sent down John Landis to make sure I wasn't screwing anything up because he was, you know, in Animal House and Kentucky Fried Movie. And he's a comedy director, is pretty established at that point. And he like came down for an afternoon and went back to the studio and was like, it's totally fine. Like, it's going to be great. Like, there's nothing to worry about. <laughs> you know, it's just another another example of like the studio just the politics and everything and all that kind of thing at the yeah. time and it's just like chill out chill out just let the artist do its thing 
they were worried that the movie was too sexual but not sexy and that they didn't think that it was funny enough to be marketed as a comedy so they just kind of like all around weren't particularly supportive of it but she also said that like while they were making this they were also Universal Studios was also making The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas starring Dolly Parton which was like this which is reference in this movie yeah and it was you know this huge budget huge production huge stars and everything so like most of the attention at Universal was focused more on that and she was able to kind of like fly under the radar a little bit more with this movie and and just like by a series of happenstances like it actually got this wide release and wound up making more than three times the amount that more than three times the budget which she like earlier I guess when she was at AFI or something someone had given her the piece of advice that like the director's golden rule is like if you can make a movie that grosses three times the budget then you're golden then you'll be able to do whatever you want to do and so she in that article that I talked about kind of goes through all of these like benchmarks that she had set for herself of being like okay so I have to make a movie and it has to do this well and then I have to make three movies before I have a kid but I want to have a kid by 30 and like all of these things that she was like holding herself to and it was she said it was like extremely stressful that she was driving herself crazy and that at that time there was a lot of kind of gross stuff in the media about women and what they could or could not do including a deeply misleading and since debunked 1986 Newsweek story that claimed that a woman was more likely to be killed by a terrorist than find a husband over 40. Whoa, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. That was oh, a man. thing that they actually put in print. Science. Yeah. So she had wanted to like beat all of these like benchmarks that she had imposed on herself or like the society was imposing on her. And she did. And then when she had her daughter, and I think that this is actually really awesome because the birth of her daughter was like this big creative turning point for her. She realized that she didn't want to be making other people's scripts. She wanted to write something of her own and came up with the idea for Look Who's Talking while she and her husband as new parents would amuse themselves by doing voices as their silent newborn, which I think is hilarious. But just like, you know, all of these things, like making a movie is hard enough and then factor in all of these extra layers of all the bullshit that women have to deal with. It's just astounding that anyone makes a movie ever. Yeah. (laughs) This movie is adapted from a Cameron Crowe script and book that he went undercover as a student at a California high school for a year. And so he wrote about that. A whole year. A whole year. Good God. A very expensive book right now, too, if you're trying to find it. I oh, think really? there's a. Yeah, it's it's well, up there in price. I mean, you are our resident book expert here on the network. <laughs> he also he wrote the screenplay, too. But he credits Amy Heckerling with a, a lot of like condensing things and stuff. Yeah, they rewrote it together. Because she read it and liked it, but didn't think it worked as a script. And so she read the book and they like sat down and reworked it to, to sort of have the more visual movie-like elements. And like consolidate a lot of the characters, too. Yeah, and sort of focused it all in on the mall, too. I think centralized it 
in that place, that one place for the most part. Yeah, which she mentions in the director's commentary that she's kind of agoraphobic, and so she really likes shopping malls because she can get to like all of these things without actually having to be outside, which was really interesting to me because then I was thinking about Clueless. I don't know about the other movies, but in Loser, there are some parts like in the NYU library and the cafeteria that feel like a shopping mall. So I'm interested to see if that kind of comes back as a as a setting in more movies like an indoor space that could be anything sort of yeah this mall like got an imdb of its own well that's the one from bill and ted's excellent adventure right oh it's from lots of stuff i get this mixed up but i'm pretty sure the inside and the outside are two different malls but the inside has also been in like night of the comet and just tons of 80s movies commando i think i don't think it exists in this form anymore i'm not exactly sure but like t2 (laughs) it's famous (laughs) yeah apparently they knocked it down and turned it into one of those outdoor malls that's only you know one level yeah oh well At least it's preserved here. Did she talk about, and maybe even if she didn't, this is still, or maybe if she did, this is still news possibly for the listener. Did she talk about in the commentary how this movie was originally rated X? Yeah. There was a couple scenes apparently that when, I think it was when Jennifer Jason Leigh's character has sex with Mike, with Damone, that they were both going to be fully naked and just sort of awkward Mm -hmm. around each other. And apparently the blowjob lesson scene with the carrots was originally they were both fully naked in a hot tub? Which seems a little excessive. (laughs) It does seem a little excessive. Like, it makes perfect sense that they were at school doing it. I mean, yeah. it's a little bit weird. The one thing I like about that scene is that Stacy's not really embarrassed by the fact that the entire table of boys is watching her do this. She kind of just, like, she thinks it's funny. Like, it's, it's this weird reaction. I don't think she realizes they're watching until... Well, no, but, like, at the end, like, you know, they all clap for her, and she just sort of laughs it off. Like, she's not, like, mortified. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like a lot of movies would play her as, I can't believe they just saw me do this. Oh, I feel like her face says that. Uh, maybe. She kind of, like, covers her face a little bit and is, like, blushing. Yeah, I mean, she's a, a little embarrassed about it, but not, like, mortified, because, I mean, even the way that she brings up the subject, they're just talking about it, like adults almost you know it's like especially uh, phoebe kate's character so nonchalant about giving the lesson and everything like it's just a matter of fact like kind of thing and and that to me is what is so like interesting and sort of jarring about even watching this again is like everybody sort of acts that way like they're all kind of acting like adults but they're kids still and they're like children almost and they're just not ready to be you know having sex and like 12 hour shifts or their jobs are like you know causing them stress like it's crazy to sit back and realize like this is just normalcy for kids and stuff but like they're not really prepared for this kind of social lifestyle yet what are you waiting for you're 15 i did it when i was 13 it's no huge thing it's just sex yikes actually while you're talking it just occurred to me that there is actually kind of a similar scene in clueless where they're having a similar kind of conversation it's not like a tutorial it's just a conversation about i think they're talking about having sex in a hot tub hot tub again hot tub also features prominently not in an amy heckling movie but in a high school slumber party movie in all the boys i love before so i mean hot tubs i think inextricably linked to high school i guess just in general right sure why not the hot tub experience yeah. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just, you know, brain firing on all cylinders right now, making connections to other movies. Yeah, mine's only firing on one cylinder, and that cylinder is Clueless. But yeah, I think I'm going to have a completely different experience watching Clueless this time, seeing, like, 
like kind of these themes that have come up in her work over and over again, or like these similar situations. So I just thought that was really interesting because another connection with Clueless and also with her thesis film that she made when she was at AFI called Getting It Over With, there is this theme of girls like wanting to lose their virginity and kind of just get it over with, which is kind of what happens in this movie and in her short, but also in Clueless, like in a slightly different approach but i think the narrative is usually that it's boys pushing girls to have sex Mm -hmm. but it's not often shown in film or other things that like girls also want to have sex so i just think that's really interesting what's interesting about that is at the end when she goes to mike and is like you know i'm pregnant i'm getting an abortion he's like you wanted it more than i did yeah The, the total opposite of it kind of Yep. It's also kind of interesting too at the very end when she's like, "I don't, I don't want sex. Like anyone could have sex. I want a relationship." Like she goes through like a pretty, you know, huge arc in this movie. Yeah. And it feels like really natural too. I don't know how much of this we can really. I mean, I guess we can attribute all of it because it's her movie. But like, how much we can attribute to it being a female director? But I think it definitely helps to have a female director with you know women talking about sex so openly and candidly, and also just the fact like this. Like, I don't know how many movies start with like a group of girls talking to each other oh my god and that it's so real too like when the the other girl walks in and is like can we just talk about how cute that guy is and they're like oh we were already gone it like it just it feels so real but i think the thing that's like really like a stark difference as far as like the gaze of this is concerned is in the sex scenes and how they're how they're shot and how it's portrayed they are not sexy at all they're like really awkward and uncomfortable and like everyone does not look like they're having a very good time you know which is like very true to what having sex as a teenager is like i wrote down that doesn't every teenage girl dream of losing her virginity on like a dugout bench staring at graffiti that says surf nazis on it like (laughs) a baseball dugout isn't that just the the way you dream everybody dreams it up yeah but to even have the camera in her perspective, looking up at the ceiling and looking at surf Nazis and this light and like, you know, it, it just is wonderful. And it's really a shame, I think, that they had to cut the other sex scene so much because apparently there was a lot more to it. Like also, in addition to male frontal nudity, like it was longer and more awkward and uncomfortable. And I would have been interesting to see the whole thing. I think the directing is just incredible in this movie, to be honest, just in light of the fact that all of these different characters feel like different personalities Mm -hmm. you know like feel like real unto themselves like nobody feels like each other and like i just feel like not just today but like you know there's lots of films especially high school films where well we just talked about summer of 84 right the same like that's everybody feels the same in that right yeah like where everyone feels the same and like just all that kind of thing and like here it's just really great how different everybody is and they're all individuals and like that just also reminds me of high school where everyone's just trying to be themselves and stand out and you know do their own thing and you know of course you get people who like fall into clicks and you know they got the pat benatars in this right there's three of those <laughs> three and, you know, 
there's always a version of that running around. But like, I really do attribute that to her directing skill and ability and just to be able to have these characters so well realized and to be able to articulate to whatever she said to these actors or whatever she did to get them into that space. I mean, we'll talk about Sean Penn. I think he brought his own game to the to the show here, but like she just orchestrated this really well. There's a lot to keep track of and it's really easy to keep track of everything and it interweaves and it's almost like some kind of puzzle kind of movie. I was thinking tapestry, but yes. Yeah, I mean, I watched it twice in a day and a half, and I'd never do that. The reason I watched it a second time was because I wanted to hear the director's commentary, but that for me to watch a movie twice in that short of a time frame, like, it has to be very good. But I think the other thing that is really wonderful about Amy Heckerling movies, like, and you can see it from the first scene in this and the first scene in Clueless, where you are getting this kind of like sweeping view of this world that these people live in. Like the detail is so rich and it feels so real. And she works really closely with her production designers and like set dressers and stuff. And and so like I love so many of the details in this movie. Like at the very beginning, there's a kid trying to shove a French horn case into a locker with a Disco <laughs> Sucks sticker on it. And it yep. just it made me laugh so hard, you know? And it's just like there's so many little details in it that are just wonderful. Joey, we get that Devo poster. Oh, we do. Yes, that comes back in a different Cage movie in Valley Girl, right? Mm-hmm. It's got its own IMDb itself, yeah. <laughs> what I really like about the opening, there's such like a, like the pace is so quick and there's so much happening. Like this whole movie, it feels quick because it's only 90 minutes, which is great. Like I was thinking for some reason this was much longer and then I liked it was like 90 minutes. I was like, oh, this is great. And then it flies by because I think being able to cut back and forth between so many different things that are happening and still, like one of you said or both of you said, that you're able to differentiate between everybody and you always know where you are and who you're with and what they want. And I think what's really special about it is that, like we were saying, she's able to distinguish everybody from one another and they all have their own sort of different things, even though they all have the same experience, right? They're all trying to like have sex with each other and like just try to get through school. Like they all have the same experience, but they all feel so unique and it's just, it's remarkable. I know that's part of the partly the script and partly the direction but like it's it's just great in that way and the other thing about these characters is that like i don't know about you guys but like i knew these kids you know like there was definitely a demon at my high school there was definitely uh, a brad at my high school you know i had a close friend who was very much ratner very very rat ratner <laughs> and i think some people might even think i i was the spicoli of the group but oh. maybe more of a punk than a surfer the spicoli yeah. of my five dads <laughs> yeah did either of you have a Brad's Bud at your school? Brad's Bud is Nicholas Cage's character, Kara, if you didn't know that. <laughs> He's got the one line, just big cruising vessel, which I didn't realize when we watched this for Cage Club, Mike, that they call, that Stacy calls it the cruising vessel. Like, I thought that was just like a cageism, but no, that's just like the name for the car. Yeah, like, this gets into something I wanted to bring up quickly. Like, my buddy had a car we called the Hellmobile. Like, you just, <laughs> like, that's just a high school kind yeah. of experience. <laughs> No, I'm like laughing about my friend's weird cars. Yeah. Like a couple of them were named, but none. I, I think I dubbed that one the Hellmobile. That's the thing is like Cameron Crowe, you know, went undercover as a high school student and really cobbled these experiences from people's real lives. Like yeah. a lot of this is real experience or based on real experience. And so that's why it feels so natural and works so well. And I don't know, maybe that was something that Amy Heckerling was able to tap into, you know, just like the idea that like, let's just keep it simple and like trust the material and mm-hmm. trust the characters. And if we just put these characters in these situations and let it play out, like we were going to have something here. And so they really had good instincts on this one and I'm glad they trusted them. And also trust the actors. Cause I think like across the board, everyone is so 
so good in this movie. Like, like I think that they're all cast so well for the, the role that they're playing. Yeah, a lot of future stars here, too. Not just Nicolas Cage, but, like, there's a, a laundry list. When Forrest Whitaker showed up, I was like, oh, right, he's in this movie. He just shows up for, like, uh, one or two minutes, too. Yeah, it's pretty great. Just wants those Earth, Wind, and Fire tickets. Yeah, but, you know, Jennifer Jason Lee, Phoebe Cates, and Sean Penn. Eric Stoltz is in there as surfer dude. And his other buddy is... Oh, yeah, Revenge of the Nerds. I know him from ER. Anthony Edwards. Also, Bruce Springsteen's sister is in this. Yep. Yeah. And Brad's wearing a Bruce Springsteen mm-hmm. shirt in the last scene. And he has a Springsteen bumper sticker on his car. I guess they're really trying to show their love for the boss in this, well, but it, yeah, the, it was the time, so... The director's commentary was interesting because Amy Heckerling was talking a lot about how unhappy she was with the music that wound up in the movie, which is shocking to me because I think the soundtrack is so good. But she was like, she was super punk rock. And so she was like really bummed out that they made her use so many Eagles songs, but that they really wanted to put a lot of Bruce Springsteen in the movie and they couldn't. So they got it in another ways, which I think is really funny. The funny thing in terms of that is that Damone is telling Rat the way to like make out with girls. He's like, just put on the first side of Led Zeppelin 4. And then they cut to Cashmere because they like Led Zeppelin 4 was just too expensive. It wasn't because it was too expensive. It was like something to do with the rights where they were like, we can't give you Zeppelin 4, but we will give you physical graffiti, which is why they, they chose right. that. And Hagerlang and Cameron Crowe on the director's commentary explained that like the, it actually worked out really well because Rat... Like would not have been able to get it together to like put the right Zeppelin <laughs> album on, which just makes that so much funnier and so much like richer to me. I also love the shout outs uh, as while we're talking about the music to Van Halen. Like I was like, mm-hmm. I would love to see Van Halen in the first 10 rows for even $20. Like mark it up, baby. $20, which I looked it up. <laughs> I looked it up. It would be about $50 right now. Oh, no. <laughs> but still, early Van Halen for $50 in the first yeah. 12 rows. Yeah, David Lee Roth Van Halen. Yeah. But I guess they're still gettable enough that when Brooke Shields rewards Spicoli for saving her from drowning. <laughs> still play his birthday party. Yeah. That, you know, he, he quote unquote blows it all on getting them to play his birthday party. So let's talk about Spicoli because Mike and I have had... <laughs> A rough couple of months, really just because of one movie, because of The Last Face, which, Kara, I don't know if you listened to this episode of Watch the Throne, our Charlie Theron podcast. Go listen to that if you haven't. It just wrapped up, so we have all 51 episodes for you to listen to, so go check that out. But there was this movie called The Last Face, Kara, which Robin Wright had the idea for. And Robin Wright was married to Sean Penn and told Sean Penn her idea and couldn't get it financed or it, it fell through or yeah. whatever. And then they got divorced. And then years later, Sean Penn starts dating Charlie Theron, makes the movie and put Charlie Theron in the Robin Wright role. Like, that is fucked. That makes me so mad. Yeah, so that we immediately were not on board with this. <laughs> also, the movie is a romance set against the backdrop of, like, war-torn Africa, where just, like, two mm. handsome doctors... Okay, yeah, no, I did listen to this episode now that I remember. Yeah. It's real bad. So Sean Penn and, and Mike and I have had, you know, we, we've had some words. And we also, Sean Penn, not necessarily the best guy. And also all the trivia in this on IMDb about this movie just makes him seem kind of douchey. And yet, Spicoli is incredible. Like, Spicoli is almost, and I say almost because it's not quite there, 
there. Almost good enough to make me forgive everything else. It doesn't. It doesn't. But Spicoli is wonderful. At the time, I can understand why it launched his career. Because it didn't just launch his career. It launched, like, a whole sort of character type, right? Like, this yeah. becomes Bill and Ted, yeah. which becomes, like, Beavis and Butthead and Wayne's World. Like, just go down the line. Like, more than anything else, that's what I give the role its credit for. It's his role, he owns it, and I give him credit for that, but that's kind of the only thing left that I'm willing to sort of, you know, throw his way right now at this point. Like, it's really hard. It also launched Vans Sneakers. Yeah, the checkered vans. Oh, I had some vans. Who among us did not? <laughs> but like, they show so many close-ups of his shoes, and then they also, at the end, when Mr. Hand comes to his house, he's holding a vans off-the-wall box. Because of this movie, because of this character, vans became, I think, what it is, in a way. Yeah, which is so weird, because like by the time I was in high school, those specific shoes, the white and black checkered ones, ska kids really loved wearing those. <laughs> you know, and it had like trickled down so far and like come so far from this movie like I don't think anyone wearing them would have known it originated from a surfer bro yeah yeah as a little kid like I didn't know it was from this movie but like they were always just like the skate shoe to us you know like if we were, we were skating it's everyone had their vans on and then when we were playing basketball we'd put our nikes on or whatever you know like that's just how i thought of them so yeah i think they're kind of like the outsider shoe right like either whether you're a surfer bro here or you're a punk kid or you're a skater kid it's all these cultures that while disparate from one another don't really align with like what a kid should be in a way quote unquote should be they're sort of like the uh converse all-star as well you know you see the black cons and everything so i don't know how they accomplished this but apparently they didn't realize how good he was until they started editing the movie and then they saw what they had they were like oh he needs to be in way more of this movie and so they either like reshot stuff or edited stuff or recut things or whatever to make him more because he's, st- he's sort of like in all ways a background character but he is kind of the lifeblood of this movie and like even to the point where like on the dvd cover on the dvd cover yeah it's him sitting on a desk at school yeah you would think that he's the star of the movie yeah they went back and they shot the dream sequence where he improvises where'd you get this jacket and the guy just like I got it from the network. Like, that like just comes out of nowhere. <laughs> but also, the only thing I bolded in my entire notes was the line from that dream sequence, Hey, bud, let's party. <laughs> a little Rocky trivia for you. Two of the actors from that dream sequence both appeared in Rocky films. Ava Lazar appeared in Rocky II, and Stu Nahan, the TV host, appeared in every film up to his death, including Rocky Balboa in 2006. I think one thing that works for the Spicoli thing is like, like, cause yeah, I agree. Like he's not really in it that much, but the scenes he's in are, are pretty great, right? Like he's got his rivalry with Mr. Hand and all the stuff at school. He wrecks the car. He's always stoned. It's just like whenever he pops up, he's like kind of like the Boba Fett, as like some <laughs> people might say, you know, it's just like he's the best background character in the movie. I mean, he saves Brad's life at the end by coming out of the bathroom at the right time. Yeah. So I think that's really clever. Like, I'm glad he's not the main character. I don't know if this movie really has a main character, which is like really great. Like, there's just you know it's just about a lot of these kids and i feel like a lot of them get very equal screen time too so it's just remarkable to me how well balanced this was yeah i think it's interesting that like people can probably bring whatever their perspective is to the movie and like see it as different people's movies like some people might see this as spicoli's movie i kind of see it as stacy's movie other people might see it as brad's movie but you're right they do kind of have equal amounts of 
screen time and it's no one star of the movie. Brad's Bud's movie, you know, whatever. I'd like to see the Forrest Whitaker movie because, like, where did he go when he left town mm-hmm. and Spicoli and his brother took the car out? Well, you know, he doesn't live here, Mike. He just flies in for the games, obviously. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's such a great clue because that's like a rumor. Yeah. But maybe it's actually true. I was trying to pick up on things I didn't notice because I've seen this movie, like, this might be one of the movies I've seen the most in my lifetime, to be quite honest. You know, I haven't seen it since we covered it for Cage Club in 2015, but I was trying to see if there were like little background things that I didn't notice last time or anything. That was when I didn't. I've only seen this movie three times now. I saw it once before and then once for Cage Club and once here. And man, I love this movie. Like this movie, it also gave me, I think just because it's the same period and also because, you know, obviously Nicolas Cage, but like it also reminded me a lot of like Valley Girl and just, you know, Mm -hmm. that time period and that setting. And like, I just, I want more of this kind of movie in my life. And I know, you know, I was watching also today, completely unrelated to this, but I was watching Action Jackson and... Like, that's just so 80s in a completely different way. You know what I mean? Oh, nice. Speaking of Rocky, yeah, Carl Weathers, man. I know. I think we're living now, not in terms of anything other than just, like, quality of movies in general, but I think we're living in, like, the time where, like, the best movies are coming out, because there's, there's more of them, and if you want to find good movies, but, like, man, like, the 80s style, in just so many different ways, it's just so incredible. This and Action Jackson are almost, like, polar opposites, but they're both, like, quintessentially 80s, and they're both remarkably amazing in that regard. Even though this is a much better movie, but man, just what a decade. What a decade. I even think of like a lot of the the horror that comes out of the 80s, right? Like that is what horror is very well known for now is like the 80s genre and rightfully so because that's what the 80s did. It just really amplified everything. (laughs) Like it didn't matter what genre you were. They were going to just like take it as far as they could. Did either of you happen to read that David Lynch was actually the first director considered for this? Which is crazy. I would love to see that version. I want both of those versions to exist. Is his version Blue Velvet to a degree? <laughs> Maybe. I have to go back and, and watch that, but probably. It might just be Twin Peaks. Yeah, I'm tr- Yeah, because I mean, he eventually does end up dealing with kids in high school. Like, that's what I was trying to think. So there's the connection. Yeah, he turned it down saying he thought it was really funny, but it was not his thing. I don't do comedy. Sorry. <laughs> George Lucas wants me to do Ewoks. Anyway, he was up for Return of the Jedi as well. So the 80s, man, they were crazy. Yeah. Well, Nicholas Coppola, a.k.a. Nick Cage, was considered actually for Brad. But he's too young. He was too young, and they also thought he was like too dark and intense for that role, which makes sense. But that is that is something that will come back to him throughout his entire career, that he has, you know. <laughs> they mentioned something on the commentary that, that took me a little by surprise. They said he was kind of a shy guy on set. Yeah, which directly contradicts something that I had read in the IMDb trivia. Which... Yeah, I read the same thing, Kara, and I don't remember this at all from when we did Cage Club, but he was apparently bragging on set about how he was going to make it before everybody else because he had these connections, and like my uncle's Francis, and like all this different stuff. Uncle Francis. You know, that doesn't feel like, because he changed his name to differentiate himself, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. again, we also, we sort of like to give the disclaimer, especially when we don't agree with the trivia, that, you know, this is IMDb trivia, and who knows, because you can just, anybody can just enter it. It's just written by somebody who was mad at him. Yeah. Can we talk about, I want to get Carrie your opinion on this, the nudity in this movie, and especially what might be the most, again to use Brian's word, iconic nude scene in movie history, the Phoebe Cates. Well, I did, I had read in multiple places that it, it was like the number one nude scene in film history on various lists. 
I remember watching it on TV, and obviously she doesn't open her bikini, but like they actually shot two versions of it. They shot two versions of like the whole movie, basically. Yeah. They shot like multiple versions, and it's shown in like all sorts of weird configurations on television. The internet's foremost pervert, Mr. Skin. This is his like favorite. I don't. I guess it's a guy. I don't know. I don't know exactly who or what Mr. Skin is. Maybe it's a collective. I don't know. But this is Mr. Skin's like favorite number one best. You know, this is like I think this scene in a way probably inspired him to make Mr. Skin. This is in ways like the nude scene. And Carol, what's your what's your opinion on this? Because other than, you know, us just saying, you know, uh, boobs, um, like, I think it's important, maybe? I don't know. It is. It's actually, it's a beautiful scene. It's really, like, it's not gratuitous. I mean, yes, she just opens up the front of her swimsuit, but it's not gratuitous. It's not kind of salacious. It's shot in this really beautiful light. It's very soft. There's pretty flowers in the background. Dr. Green's. Which I noticed on this viewing, the shrubs behind her are like studded with all of these flowers that aren't actually there in real life. Um, It's like part of the fantasy and there's like water spritz and like the light is really beautiful. And I actually, I think it's lovely. You know, the jerking off point, less so. But <laughs> with actually, uh, with apparently like a real dildo that he brought on set yeah. or whatever. Like, doesn't that context sort of help the scene? Like, as as opposed to it just being like not a fantasy. You know, yeah, of like course. in so many other movies where they're just sort of like skinny dipping and yeah. everything. Like at least his fantasy, and then he's like he's the joke, and it's all kind of like from his perspective. And... Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Like as far as you know, iconic nude scenes go. I think like there's a reason that it winds up number one on lists, and I hope that it is because of the quality of the filmmaking and not because it's a teenage girl. So I have mixed feelings about it. But that was actually like the second day that they were shooting. Oh, really? They shot that scene. Yeah, and Amy Heckerling had the flu that day. Oh. Yeah. This movie also has, I don't know if complicated is the right word, but complicated nude scenes in that Jennifer Jason Lee, when filming this, was 19, but she's playing a 15-year-old, and you see her naked kind of a lot, like at least a couple times. Like, is it supposed to make you feel conflicted as a viewer? I think so, because it's, you know, here are these babies basically doing all of this grown-up stuff when they're not ready for it. Apparently, Jennifer Jason Leigh was, like, totally fine being naked, and she actually wanted, like, more nudity in the movie. So that definitely helps me feel less weird about it. The one time where I was just like, ugh, was actually, like, the beginning part of the movie where she goes out with that guy who is supposed to be like 27 that i was yelling at the screen that's upsetting but it turns out that that actor is only seven months older than her in real life oh good yeah that made me feel a lot better about it yeah that's part of the design of the film i believe you know is to stir those emotions and get you thinking in that in that way in ways you're you're not used to thinking and feeling about teenagers and especially in films you know like this is not you know this hasn't been made in the days of the haze code you know what i'm saying and like that's i feel like what the the parents of the kids that are seeing this movie are used to so right. there is the shock value sort of uh bred into it yeah and and heckerling pointed out on the dvd commentary that it that they also kind of like scooted in under like the reagan era backlash against these kinds of movies so i, I found that kind of interesting too but i think just the fact that there was so much thought and care put into these nude scenes just i mean that 
in and of themselves makes it significantly better than 98% of the nudity that we see in film, you know, because so little thought is put into it. And it's just like, oh, we're just going to have them get naked here because people want to see some titties, you know. The fact that, like, they did put in so much thought and care to it and also that it happened to come out really well, too, like, really helps. I don't know where to go from there, so I'll just say that this is a movie in which Santa Claus says, how fucking long do I have to wait talking about pizza? (laughs) You know what that reminds me of is... um... I really love the sort of the scope of this, like how it goes through an entire school year. Yeah. That is really interesting, and I feel like it's really well done, and I was pretty impressed about the timeline. Because how many movies basically take place over a full year and essentially wind up in the same place where it started? Like, literally, in the mall, but also the same, you know, just summer. Just like summer living or whatever. Summer loving happens so fast. Yeah, she said something on the uh, commentary also about how she wanted these kids to look like kids and not... Not like Greece. Yeah, where everyone was 40. Yeah. <laughs> I got a kick out of that because of the, you know, all the Greece a couple months back from wistful thinking and high school slumber party. Yeah. Yeah. Something else that she had said on the commentary about Jennifer Jason Leigh. I don't know if this was a joke or not. I know that Jennifer Jason Leigh worked at that pizza parlor, like actually worked there as an employee before they started shooting. And Amy Hagerling said while she was laughing that she was a method actress. So she went and got that job before shooting. And I don't know if she was joking about her being a method actress or not, because I think it's interesting to like put that next to all of the bullshit that Sean Penn has pulled on movie sets over the years and men like him who are these, you know, brilliant method actors that people have so much respect for, you know, but they treat people like shit. Well, even on this movie, that he apparently wouldn't respond to people call him Sean. He had to be called Spicoli and his dressing room said Spicoli on it because he wouldn't be referred to as anything other than Spicoli. So even back then, kind of douchey. Introduced himself at the rap party to people as Sean. Yeah, as if they were meeting for the first time. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. Meanwhile, people don't take actresses seriously, even if they are trying to be a serious actress. And so, like, if it is a method actress thing that she went and she got that job, like, what a wholesome example of, like, see, you don't need to be an asshole to people to get into character. You could just go work at a pizza place. To become a terrible waitress. Like, she's a bad waitress. I mean, she's not bad, but she's, like, she's unremarkable. No, she she spills the coke on, on that guy, like, right away. So she's a bad waitress. She has to, like, get, like, lessons. Like, I guess it's more, you know, sort of flirting lessons than waitress lessons. But, like, if he says anything even remotely funny laugh like she doesn't seem good at her job like nobody in this movie seems good at their job except for maybe mr hand oh and the the science teacher but that's the thing like i I keep thinking about it's like they're kids like are they supposed to be working this much like should they be in charge like should four kids like be running a pizza parlor without like at least one adult supervising you have no idea. like i worked at an ice cream shop for nine months in high school and like there were nights where like the oldest person in the store was like 17 like there were like 17 year old managers with like 14 year old employees joey i cannot believe we've never talked about this i too worked at an ice cream shop did you work at maggie moose by any chance that's a great name No, I worked at a Dairy Queen. But yeah, we were left alone. We, oh my goodness, the things we did in that freezer. Hope you don't want any whipped cream because we're all out of nitrous. (laughs) (laughs) It's ridiculous. And also like, you know, I worked at a grocery store and like, well, apparently, you know, going back to this movie for a second, they all sniffed the paper, the photocopier, because apparently there was some kind of something in the ink that got you like slightly high. Oh, we used to do that. 
No, but yeah, absolutely. There, there are definitely babies watching babies in terms of like jobs, like just trusting people with like the keys to the store when you're 17 years old. Like, I don't know what's going on. Like, you know, I worked at a grocery store and on Saturday nights, like there were, you know, because no adult wants to work a Saturday night. And like, it would just be like a high school junior watching a bunch of high school freshmen counting all the money for a grocery store for an entire day or a week or whatever. Like, it's just, it's crazy how much responsibility kids in real life and also in this movie are given. We're just dumb kids. Yeah, I was a manager of a KB when I was 19, but, like, it didn't occur to me how young I was at the time, like, running a KB Toys, but... R.I.P. KB Toys. Well, Cameron Crowe actually said something interesting on the commentary, which was this was three or four years after he had graduated from high school that he had, like, gone back and done this, like, year embedded as a high school student. And he had said just in that short period of time, this massive change had taken place where all of a sudden all of these kids had jobs. And it really changed things for teenagers because now they had money and they were working to buy records and cars and, like, all of this, like, weird capitalist stuff, like, entered teenagerdom. And I think it it gets captured so well in this movie. It still blows my mind that Cameron Crowe wrote this just... I mean, he goes on to have, like, quite a directing career himself. But, like, yeah. after watching Almost Famous and seeing how, like, that character... Shut up, P.S. I love Hoffman. And that character is based off of him, you know, and how he sort of took off from high school and went and wrote for Rolling Stone. Like, how he was able to go back and, like, capture a part of that. I mean, that's the thing that's so mind-blowing to me is that, like, you've been on tour with Led Zeppelin and then you're going to go back to high school for an entire year as a high school student, you could not have paid me $10 million. <laughs> I mean, not at all the same thing, but, you know, another show on the network, Magic Mike's, where 21 Jump Street, they go undercover to high school. It's not unheard of, even though that's a fictional thing and this is real. Actually, speaking of TV shows, in a way, did either of you watch, because I didn't even know it existed the night, the Fast Times no. TV show that there's like a spinoff for one year that apparently Amy Heckerling directed some of? I vaguely remembered it existing, but I did not attempt to track it down. It sounded like it might have gotten canceled in the first season. It seems like something they would have made into a TV show. Clueless became one. Yeah, like I feel like it's that's a that's a different thing. Like back then, I think stuff just became TV shows. Today, it would just get like a sequel. Mm-hmm. Faster times at Ridgemont High or something. Well, they wanted to make a Spicoli spinoff sequel. I'm glad they didn't. Just watch Animal House. Even though Animal House takes place like 30 or 20 or 30 years before this movie, like I feel like it's a good spiritual successor. And it came out before this movie, but whatever. I don't know if I need Spicoli goes to college. Does he go to college? He doesn't seem like the college He type. doesn't seem like the higher learning type, no. He might have gone to like Evergreen State. You know, that weird college in Oregon where, like, no one wears shoes and there's no majors. Like, or, like, Bennington or something. You know, one of those, like, real alternative colleges, but... Isn't that sort of like how our school started that I heard? Yeah. It was just it was... a bunch of hippies in sandals with their dogs that wanted to teach each other. And there was a pool and people showed up to, to class in their bathing suits. Yeah, like the, the few Ramapo College teachers who had been there since the start and just, you know. The stories they tell. Yeah, the stories they tell. So there's a band that I only know one song of because it was a song in a rock band, but this band, Damone, took their name from Mike Damone. So that's kind of a cool little reference, I guess. I don't know. I don't know that he's necessarily the, the coolest character in this movie. He's probably one of the least cool characters in this movie. He's my but, least favorite character. Yeah. But he's yeah. also, like, he's a great character because he is like that yes. tough yes. bravado, like, I'm the older cool guy. He's giving sex tips when either he's a virgin or just not very experienced. The fact that, you know, how quickly he finishes when he has sex with Stacy, right? So. Yeah. Oh my god, okay. But after that, the two girls are standing there sawing off either end of a large salami. 
just a big old dick of meat. That made me laugh so hard. There's a, there's a few visual gags. There's a lot of really great setup. I feel like he's set up really well, too, because he's trying to give Rat, like, all this terrible advice. And you're like, man, this guy is a jerk. This is how he treats women. And then eventually he ends up treating a woman that way, you know, like, just like a jerk. Although I wonder, I wonder if, and I, I, I know that there's a difference. And it's probably not as bad. I feel like the, the advice that Phoebe Kate's character, Phoebe Kate's character, Linda, gives Stacy isn't necessarily much better better. No, it's pretty much on par. Because she's having this imagined relationship with this older man in Chicago, you know, and she just thinks that she's just so much more mature. And she's a baby too. Do you think where she winds up in the post-credits where it's like she's living with her psychology teacher, do you think that's real or do you think that's like her version of what's happening? Do you think she imagines that she's living with her teacher? Well, it's, it's almost like, you know, like right in with like, where are you now? And she's just like, oh yeah, like I'm, you know, I'm taking these classes and I'm living with my teacher or whatever. No, I think it's a little darker. Like, I think she's actually living oh, yeah. like I a summer school kind of thing. Unfortunately. Yeah, I think so. Because I think that's a very real character, you know, and it's very real. That, like, it just, it that felt very authentic to me. That, she, that that same girl would be, you know, living with her professor. I hate it but I think it's accurate. She does have one of the best lines in the movie where she says, you've dated older guys, you work at the best food stand in the mall, and you're a close personal friend of mine. Like, basically saying to Stacy, like, why wouldn't people like you? You're friends with me. Like, what more could anybody possibly want? Yeah. But I also, I like how mad she is when she finds out that Damone didn't show up for the abortion, which I do want to talk about. But I just sent you guys a <laughs> screenshot that I took of my favorite shot in the movie, which is taking place. So uh, Stacy has told him, like, she's pregnant and she's going to get an abortion. And all she asks him for is for him to pay half. And a ride. And a ride. And give her a ride there. Yep. And so the next scene is him calling around to people trying to collect on debts and you see and up close this feels very Cameron Crowe to me I think there's a few shots in Almost Famous that are like this a piece of paper on one side it says people who owe me and like the different amounts and names and whatever and then the other side says expenses it says abortion $75 Rod Stewart $60 question mark <laughs> And it just made me laugh really hard. He must be really bad at his job of being a ticket scalper, aside from the fact that he gets arrested in the post credits for scalping Black Sabbath tickets or whatever. Rick Shasta owes him 50 bucks for Rio. It's like, bro, get that, get half of that up front. I mean, what do you, what is, what? Yeah, he's a terrible businessman. But, like, I mean, he makes 40 bucks, or he makes, I guess, $16 profit, but he takes in. 40 bucks for the Van Halen tickets. Like, it feels like he's set up to be like this successful scalper, but I guess he's not. Or he's like just literally all the money he gets, he's rebuying things with. Also, it makes me want to wonder like, why can't these kids buy their own tickets? Like, why does his business exist? You know what I mean? Like, people go to him, like, Forrest Whitaker goes to him. He's like, when's Earth, Wind, and Fire coming to town? Like, does he just not want to be bothered by having to buy tickets himself? Well, like, Ticketmaster didn't exist yet. I guess this is what the, this was an era where you had to, like, go to a record store or whatever and wait online and buy tickets there, right? So. Yeah. Yeah, it's the convenience. He's, he's doubling the price, basically. That's the original convenience fee. Or maybe he's the one that travels. Like, maybe he has to go, you know, like an hour away to the place. Because aren't they supposed to be in the valley or something? Yeah. So maybe he has to go to Hollywood to get the tickets and then bring them back. Or he's got a contact. Or he's just the man. That's his thing. Or he's just 
really bad at his whole shtick, which I think is more likely. But what I love about him that also I love about the Phoebe Cates character is just their, like, supreme confidence, like, you know, and just their ability to, like, fake it. But it's a good sort of balance between, like, Ratner, who's got, like, no confidence, and then someone like Brad or Jennifer Jason Lee, who, funny enough, are related in this movie. Uh, but, like, their characters are, like, sort of floating in the middle there, you know, where, mm-hmm. like, one of them goes like Jennifer Jason Lee sort of goes from like um, insecure in a way to like being more confident or comfortable and then Brad is sort of the opposite where like he's really confident and at the end of it he's just like stuck in like this job he hates and he's like in a dead end zone right now I mean to the point where he's he's practicing in the speech in the mirror how he's gonna break up with his girlfriend and then like when things go a little bit wrong he's like thank god you're here thank god you're my rock and she's like well I think I think we're I think we're over now the mirror scene is so good. I also liked, you know, on the mirror, it says Big Hairy Pussy. And I just like thinking yeah. like Big Cruise and Vessel. Like it's just sort uh. of his car name in a way staring yeah. back at him. Oh, but it's just like framed so beautifully. And he's just so good at being so earnest, but like not in a way where you want to like punch him in the face, you know? Friends with Cage. How could you judge him wrong? Exactly. <laughs> I was thinking about Damone's accent and was like, why is he talking like this? Like, is this a Greece situation where, like, an entire subset of the high school population sounds like they're from New Jersey, even though they are living in California? But it turns out that in the original screenplay, it is revealed that Mike Damone is actually a transfer student from South Philadelphia. Oh, in South Philadelphia, born and raised? I think, sure. didn't they say uh, they couldn't afford Ralph Macchio? I wonder yeah. if that's the role that he was going to read for. Oh, probably. I could, just could see that. Yeah. There's a bunch of people who, I mean, of course, when it's, you know, 35 years old and this this movie launched so many careers, but like the long list of people who like auditioned or were considered for this, uh, Christopher mm-hmm. Reeve for Jeff Spicoli. Then there's this, this long list of Ralph Macchio, Matthew Broderick, Meg Tilly, Michelle Pfeiffer, Lori Loughlin, Elizabeth Shue, Kelly Preston, Rosanna Arquette, Carrie Fisher, Ali Sheedy, D.B. Sweeney, who are all obviously huge now, but back then, you know, might have been different, might have been smaller. Tom Hanks, shout out Hanks for the memories, considered for the role of Brad. Um, of earnest people I want to punch in the face. No! He's fine. He just, he's so nice. It's bothersome. She mentions Carrie on, she just says Carrie at one point on the commentary when talking about writing. I wonder if she was like hanging around helping to like crack the screenplay knowing that, you know, she's sort of this notorious uh, anonymous script doctor that's like got her hands in several screenplays that are really great throughout Hollywood history. So I wonder if she had uh, a little work on this too. Oh, I did say I wanted to talk about the abortion. Yes. So one in three women by the age of 45 will have had an abortion. But, you know, based on how often it's talked about or how often it's shown in movies, you wouldn't think that it actually was that common. So I appreciate it when it does show up in movies. And I also appreciate it when it's not this, like, when it's not like the entire thrust of the movie, (laughs) you know? It's not this big dramatic thing. It's just like a shitty thing that a woman needs to go through because of whatever the given circumstances are, which is how abortions happen. So I just appreciated it. That was like another layer, I think, of reality and another like touchstone of a woman's touch as a director, I think, that we wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Yeah, like it's obviously a very important thing, but it's only maybe a minute and a half of screen time, and then it leads to a couple different things. But it, you know, it's not like this like dramatic third act pivotal moment or whatever. She just asks for the ride, doesn't get it, sneaks off there, but gets picked up by her brother. Like you know, and that's that's the end of it. And then from there, that's when you know she and Phoebe Cates 
torture, rightfully torture Damone and, you know, right prick in his car and prick in his locker and probably spread gossip about him, about his little prick. Which also is less of a reality thing, I think, but just feels good to see. Oh, definitely feels good. Yeah, I think it's it's really interesting that this movie goes there. I mean, it's almost just a consequence of the story they're telling, and it's great that they're not trying to avoid it, you know? Like, they're not fighting the story in itself. Like, you know, these kids, they're unprepared, they're underage, and they're having sex. Like, this happens, yes. Like, this is a fact of life. And it's also great how it just helps balance like because so much of this is comedic even though it's not like jokey like it's just kind of i want to say situational kind of comedy but just like comes out of conflict of character really of like these personalities butting up against each other and being awkward teens and stuff so um it helps balance a lot of that too so we have we have to take it to like a dark real place at some point and get like you know after school special about it to a degree but you know thankfully it doesn't become an after-school special and give it all the credit in the world about that, that how we can just dip down into this dark place for a couple minutes and come out the other side and we can end this at like a, a dance where everyone's smiling. But that's really great. You know what else is great about this? That Jordan and I on Wistful Thinking, we've gotten very disheartened and exhausted by the amount of sexual assault that we see in films. You know, whether... It is blatant or things that we're rewatching, like when we watched Rocky Horror with Mike, where we were like, oh, wow, that's rape, you know, um, stuff that like we had never noticed before and just had never really realized just how prevalent it is in film. And again, very prevalent in real life, but doesn't always happen the way that it is shown on film. So it's been exhausting. And so now, like every time I see a movie where no one gets raped, I'm like, wow, isn't that refreshing? <laughs> It's the little things. You know, and so, I mean, technically there's statutory rape in this movie, but no actual assault. And I appreciate that. It's all consensual sex. It wasn't knowingly statutory rape. He thought she was 19. Yeah, she she did say it twice. He asked again and she lied to him again. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a thing that I noticed. I think the only other thing that I have in my notes, and I'm also proud of us, Mike, for talking more about this movie than we did the first time. I think our Cage Club episode of this was 15 minutes because we're like, hey, cool, he's in four shots. Uh, <laughs> we were so new to podcasting, too. And, and we had just done, like, we had just had our minds blown by... The best of times? We, the best of times. I mean, that was just... we had. I don't think we had recovered yet. I don't think so, either. I'll have to go back and listen to that episode. Oh, it's our very first episode. where it, you, should, you should also watch The Best of Times. Also, if you're listening to this, watch The Best of Times. It's on YouTube. It's like this 35 or 40 minute TV pilot or something where it's like half slaps, not slapstick, but like half goofy, campy comedy. It's like sketch comedy. And then also Nick Cage delivers this like devastating, like, I don't want to go to war because I don't want to die in war. And I don't want to, you know, I don't know how to be a man in this country. And just like, it's a crazy monologue. 10 minutes ago, you're just seeing to a comb in like a, in a musical. Like, what is happening? Jackie Mason's in it. Crispin Glover's in it. It's out of control. Crispin Glover is like the narrator of it. It's it's bananas. It's on YouTube. The best of times. Uh, but yeah, this is the second thing. This is his first movie. And then obviously he would go on to do Valley Girl next. So from, from here on out, it's just enormous, you know, cage and lead. But from 
Amy Heckerling's Wikipedia page. She apparently never felt really at home in school. Her dad got transferred jobs, so she went to this different high school, felt really out of place there. So she went to the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan. And on the first day, the teacher passed out this assignment. I love this story. We talked about this on the Clueless episode of Wistful Thinking. It's so good. On the first day, they passed out assignment like, what do you want to be? And she wrote down that she wanted to be a writer or artist from Mad Magazine and then saw that this guy next to her, this like dopey guy who would later copy her papers and stuff and copy her tests, was like, I want to be a film director. She's like, fuck that guy. Like, I want to be a film director. Like, if he can do it, I can do it. And like, that's sort of what inspired her to, at least, you know, partly wanted to do this aside from, you know, growing up watching all these old like James Cagney movies with her grandma and just like watching movie after movie after movie and just falling in love with movies. It was just like, I think seeing that like an idiot could aspire to being what she she held in such high regard was enough she's like oh wait no i can do this too and then you know probably 10 or 15 years later made this movie and so yeah. and did that guy end up becoming anybody i don't, I don't think, think so. so there you go <laughs> that that, ma- that man was martin scorsese <laughs> <laughs> The other thing about that is that for women, we haven't had a lot of like, especially at that time, you know, like the options were like wife and mother or nurse. Sorry, this is sort of related. When could women not apply for a credit card until? Uh, like 1973. They could, but they wouldn't necessarily be. Her husband probably had to be there. To right. And that the credit card company could reject it. So actually argued by Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, up to the Supreme Court. I, that was a whole thing. Anyway, if you can't see it, you don't know that you can be it, you know? And I think that this is this is still true up into my generation as far as directing films goes because like with all of the creative people that I've known over my life I have always been an artist and always in arts programs I went to art school like I know a lot a lot a lot of creative people a lot of creative women and one of them was like yeah I want to be a director you know what I mean like from from the start before freshman year she was like no I don't want to do all this other bullshit I know I want to be a director like let me be a director and none of the other creative women that I know started from that place maybe some of them have gotten to that place and and realize like hey if this dipshit can do it maybe I can too but I think it's really really worth noting that without more examples of women directing film, which we need desperately, like, you know, it's hopefully it's starting to change and little girls are going to grow up being like, yeah, I want to make movies, but definitely well up into my generation that never occurred to me that that would be a career path. But it's still not like good because there was an article that I saw I didn't read because I, I, I get it. But one of the biggest names in horror right now and probably in most of Hollywood is Jason Blum of Blumhouse uh, who makes, you know, so many of like literally like, you know, the best and most popular horror movies today. And apparently he had some like dumb comment about women directors or whatever. And so somebody put out this art list of like, oh, no, here are like 10 women directors who like you should start hiring for your thing. Yeah. I would love to see an Ava DuVernay horror movie. Why not? Lexi Alexander, like, what has she been up to? What is amazing is, like, Karen Kusama is, we'll probably do her at some point on this, but, like, you know, the the invitation is incredible, and, like, Jennifer's body, and, like... Man, I just saw Jennifer's body for the first time. It's so good. It blew my mind. It really blew my mind. And, like, she's an example, Karen Kusama is an example of somebody who, like, with Eon Flux, 
had the production like taken away from her and got turned into something else entirely. Into a bad movie. <laughs> into a fucking bad movie and like has had a hard time working after that. So yeah, like women should be able to make bad movies if that's what they wanted to. Men are able to make bad movies. Why can't ladies too? Or they could make good movies. But she did make The Invitation, which is great. Go watch The Invitation. It is real good. But this was delightful. Yeah, I had a blast revisiting this. Uh, Cara, do you have anything else to say about this that we're going to say about this? Of course I do. The scene where they go to dinner, Stacy and the rat, and they're at that like German restaurant. Where they're in the biggest chairs in the world. Yeah. So Amy Heckerling actually took the cushions off the chairs and also had the props department make extra large menus to make them look more like babies. That's so good. Isn't that amazing? Because they, they, they do look ridiculous in those chairs. That's so smart. There's a couple things like that that now when you sort of look at, at it a little closer and analyze it, it's a little... I don't want to say like a, like um like a satire or parody kind of thing, but there is like those little sort of cartoon touches that I never noticed before, like what you just mentioned. Or I think of like the football game; it just turns into like Looney Tunes for a minute. Well, it's closer to like Waterboy than anything else, right? Like this sort of cartoony, over the top, <laughs> right? <laughs> Shout out Foodie Films. Shout out Foodie Films. Water. You can tell. Like I don't know how interested she is in satire, but like her next movie is I've never seen it, but I know it's a satire, Johnny Dangerously. So. And Clueless is very much a satire of teen films. Like, there is at least one shot-for-shot recreation of something from Encino Man, and I only know that because I saw Encino Man recently and, like... Stop wheezing the juice. Yeah, like, recognized the scene from Clueless, and I'm, like, curious to go back and see, like, how many... How much more of the movie is actually, like, parodies of these teen films. I think of that one shot in Clueless when she's describing the way some of the guys dress and they're walking. That's the scene. Yep. Okay. I always think of the right stuff. Okay. I have not seen that. The astronauts are walking and it's like, here's here's where we are now. Like, used to be the right stuff and now we've got these dudes. Yeah, but she's like, searching for a boy in high school is as pointless as searching for meaning in a Polly Shore movie. And like, <laughs> she's saying that as it's this recreation of the scene from a Polly Shore movie, which I just think is so brilliant. No shade to Polly Shore movies from me. Oh, love the weasel. Yeah, I do too. Listen, Biodome is a masterpiece. Oh, when I was sitting at Jury Duty last week, all I could think of was his movie, Jury Duty, with, with Tia Carrera. So, you know. What else you got, Cara? The composer, the original composer that they had for the film, like, bailed on them. I didn't get the full story on that, but he disappeared somehow. And so they wound up scoring the entire movie with, like, little bits of music from the Universal Library. So, like, there's, like, little monster stings in there and like all sorts of other bits and pieces from their library over the course of film history, which I think is really interesting. The kind of epilogue with their like what happened to them stories that was also a universal thing that the studio wanted because it had worked really well in physical graffiti and like a bunch of other movies that they had made i like that part of it american graffiti not physical graffiti yes you are correct not the not cashmere led zeppelin oh she also said that ending shots after that where you see all the businesses closing down was largely influenced for her by mean streets she said after all the shooting and all the aggravation and all the craziness it's just sort of like the neighborhood closing down which I haven't seen that in a really long time, but she had taken that idea from that movie. So I found that interesting. Is that Scorsese? 
Yes. So yeah. Oh, my, uh, yeah. So you mentioned him earlier. Yeah. You know, the the, the boy next to her in class made Mean Street. So she took, <laughs> you know. And then just uh, two funny quotes from the director's commentary. They were talking about using somebody's baby by Jackson Brown as like Stacy's theme, and it's always like it's on during her two sex scenes. And Cameron <laughs> Cameron Crow said, "Sorry, we had to put the triumphant reprise of somebody's baby over it." which made me laugh really hard because I used to love that song. Now I feel differently about it. And when Spicoli is driving the car, he says, people on lewds should not drive. And uh, Cameron Crowe was like, oh, that was that was improvisation, right? And she was like, oh, no, that's just my personal philosophy. <laughs> if you see Wolf of Wall Street, yeah. you know that's true. <laughs> Especially those lemons. <laughs> Although if you watch it from you know Leo's perspective, he's a great driver. Justine Bateman was supposed to be in this movie, but she turned it down to do Family Ties, which ran on for seven years. So I think I feel like as big as this movie is, she probably made the right decision. Oh, the guy who Rat is based on became sort of famous for writing a lot of the Four Dummies books. So, you know, he was probably pissed off that he didn't like how he was portrayed. But he comes across to me as like the most genuine... Like nicest person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think in this, in this you know, world where everybody is having sex except for, maybe except for Brad, you know, that he's not. I can see why he'd be, you know, he's not the cool one. But he's a genuine nice guy, but, you know, it's in a movie filled with like hot people having hot sex or bad sex or, you know, whatever. But Also, apparently in real life, he was the one that ordered pizza in class and not Spicoli. I would have been mad if that got taken away from me. Spicoli is based on somebody, though, right? He's kind of a, a mishmash. Okay. Yeah, I, like, and Sean Penn actually based his portrayal on somebody that he knew in high school. This movie came out right around this time that Pink Floyd's The Wall did, as well as Porky's and Zapped. So Hackerling was really worried that no one would see Fast Times at Ridgemont High because she thought that the cool kids would see the wall, the horny kids will see Porky's, and the teeny bopper girls will see Zapped, and we're just going to die. I mean, Porky's got a part three, so, <laughs> you know, it made some money. I think Zapped got a part two. None of them are any, none of those movies can touch this, though. The Wall's very scary. Um, I uh, have a very sort of sordid history with rock operas. They all creep me out to the ninth <laughs> degree. Rocky Horrors and Phantom of Paradise are probably the two I like. My favorite thing about the commentary is that it went on for seven and a half minutes after the movie ended. That was amazing. I know. And then they sing Boingo Boingo together at the end. Yeah, yeah. They're just sitting there listening to the theme song, talking about how much fun it was to do a commentary and, and like what movie they should do next. Yeah. Is it just her? Is it just Amy Heckling and Cameron Crowe? Cameron Crowe. Yeah. Very yeah, cool. it's wonderful because it's like these two great artists who like clearly respect each other a lot and had a really good time working together. So it was like a real pleasure to listen to. What's a rarity in this world of ours? The only thing I have left down on my notes is uh, I really like the lack of adults throughout the rest of this entire movie. Like we basically get the two teachers and like we have one shot of uh, Stacy's mom, barely. And we get a fast food manager for like a minute. And the medical examiner. But the way he refers to the fast food manager like calls Dennis by his full name makes it seem like he's like an equal but yeah I like that about it and I really love the two teachers too like it was just a great sort of like if we only have time to show two like they've got the two extremes like I definitely had these two teachers at some point in my oh, high yeah, school for career. Sure. I also feel like the fast food manager you know seems a lot older but is probably like 22 yeah that mustache is putting him you know that mustache is probably giving him a couple years older than he actually is anything else we want to say about this a lot of good socks 
folks with high heels in this movie that I enjoyed. <laughs> the fashion. Yeah, great costumes. And I think that's like another kind of hallmark of Heckerling's movies is that her costuming and stuff is like impeccable, but at the same time, not too Hollywood for the people in the movie. Like it's a little Hollywood and clueless, but like that's kind of the point. They live in Beverly Hills, whereas like this was like kids living in the valley wearing things that kids living in the valley would wear. And like we were talking about before with all of the like rich detail, it's really easy, I think, to kind of pass off her movies as being very frivolous or, you know, simple. And like, if you just take them on their face, they might seem that way. But there's actually like a lot of really good attention to detail and thoughtful filmmaking. Do you think she has a computer like Cher does that you actually captured in your art for Wistful for that episode? Yeah. Because that was like one of my first memories of being like, wow, computers are amazing. Computers are important. (laughs) Yeah. And like influencing me in being interested in computers and then like going on to work in technology. So thanks, Amy Hackerling. I hope that she does have a computer like that. That would be cool. Cool. Anything else we want to say before we close up shop and look ahead to Johnny Dangerously next week? There's a fun corpse in this movie. (laughs) I love a corpse. Oh, there is a corpse. I don't know if it's a fun corpse. It's a very dissected corpse. I think there's even like ramen noodles, the chest cavity. (laughs) Well, because the version that I watched yesterday was on Amazon, which I think was remastered and much higher quality than the DVD that I watched today. You can't really see it on the DVD, but the higher quality version, it looks like there's ramen noodles in there. That whole bit is set up too, like in one of the first scenes in Mm -hmm. high school where they've blonde kid comes in and he's like he's gonna pull his heart out in front of it and everything and i was like oh man it's another clever sort of setup there and also mr hand when he's like you wouldn't like it if i came to your house and discussed history on your time would you yeah (laughs) he does that at the end We'll be back next week for Johnny Dangerously. We're going to close out. I mean, I guess the final episode, we haven't really gotten there yet. We haven't discussed yet. But the final episode will be her run of episodes on Red Oaks. As we talked about earlier, she's done a lot of TV work. So we're going to try to figure out how to do that. Yeah. And I think it is important that we talk about, we've talked about this off mic. I think it's important that we talk about her TV work because of the way that her career has panned out and she's been kind of foisted off into the TV world. But Red Oaks feels like Fast Times at Ridgemont High so much. Does it really? Yeah, I watched that at some point in the past year and it's excellent and it feels a lot like this. So she's able to get, I think, the kind of like richness and authenticity of the characters on that show. It's a great show. That's good to hear because that and vamps is like the only thing i haven't seen on the list right now and the clueless tv show so knowing that's sort of like at the end there that we might be ending on a high note is uh is really cool yeah i'm really looking forward to seeing vamps like i've been looking forward to vamps since i read that it was in development it did come out eventually but not really you know and i just never got a chance to see it so i'm really looking forward to that well for all things cinemakers and all things otherwise including our cage club episode of fast times original high which we probably covered i don't know 100 percent. actually no we did not cover 100 percent of what we talked about there today because we did not go shot by shot of when nicholas cage was cracking eggs in this movie and such and so on and so forth he cracks eggs in this movie he does at least once in the background he cracks an egg did you happen to notice he also tapes a sign that says I'm a homo to a kid's back? 
That's shitty. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think we talked about that in the episode, too. But for all things Cinemakers and Cage Club and Wistful Thinking and everything, all 20 of our shows, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. We are on Spotify now. I don't know if we were on Spotify when we recorded the RKSS Collective episode or not, but you can listen to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. Rate and review. Leave some reviews. Yeah, do that. Email us, cinemakers at cageclub.me. Let us know what you think of Amy Hackerling's movies, of Fast Times, of this episode, of us. If you have an idea of who you want us to do next, you know, we're always in the on the lookout for cool directors, either, you know, for the one-off episodes or for extended runs. We're still accepting Christopher Nolan email and Steven Soderbergh email as well, so. Also true. We will do at some point Catherine Bigelow for this. We will do the Wachowski sisters. We will also do, I think, probably Karin Kusama. But if you if there's another, if there's a woman director out there that we have not mentioned that you think we should absolutely do, we might have her on the list, we might not, but email cinemakers at cageclub.me. Let us know what you think. And, you know, we'll see you next week for Johnny Dangerously. I'm Jimmy Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Kara Regan. And we'll see you next time for Johnny Dangerously right here on Cinemakers. Goodbye!